Welcome to Christ Chapel College, the college outreach of Christ Chapel Bible Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope everyone experiences what Jesus calls abundant life. So we unapologetically point to Him as the source of life and joy. If you're a college student in the Fort Worth area, we'd be stoked to connect with you. Find out more at ChristChapelCollege.org and on Instagram at ChristChapelCollege. Good morning. How are you guys? Good, good. Uh, it is a good morning. Uh, thank you all for being here at 9 a.m. Thank you all for getting up early and worshiping Jesus with us. Uh, this is sweet and uh, it, saves, uh, it saves a bunch of room for other people who are much bigger sinners than y'all to come at 11. So good job. Don't tell them I said that, guys. I say bad things about y'all when they're in here. Okay, so we are going to be in Romans 5. Uh, if you're kind of just checking in with us for the first time or you're a guest or whatever, we're going through the entire book of Romans. Uh, it's an incredible book, and we are just going to walk through the entire book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, throughout this year. There is so much good stuff in it, and so uh, we're going to pick up where Francis left off and where Paul left off in verse 5 of chapter 5. Uh, I thought he did a Fabulous job last week, just really unpacking uh, kind of this formula that God has and how he uses suffering. And we're really going to piggyback off that idea when we pick up in verse six. So um, we'll throw the verses up there on the screen too, if that's easiest for you. Uh, while you're flipping there, I'm going to tell you a story. And it, it has a point, I promise. Um, it's one of my favorite stories to tell. I've, I told it about a year ago in Renovate, um, but I don't think I've shared it in college in a little bit. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories to really help illustrate the idea of walking in confidence in God's grace that we're going to see in this particular passage. Uh, and so I got the opportunity to, I've gotten to travel a good amount in my life and just some really cool and sweet uh, opportunities. And there was this time that I was coming back from a trip. I was coming back from a trip from Russia and I had a layover in England, in London specifically. And so I had this layover in London and I was changing airports. Uh, and so I had all night. So I landed in the evening and my flight took off the next morning. And so I thought, man, I'm just going to go bum it in London. I've never been to London. I speak English. They speak English. This is perfect. I'm just going to get a taxi and go find some cool coffee shop that's open all night and, and do the London thing. And so uh, that's what I did. I was sitting in a coffee shop and this guy started chatting with me. His name was Abudi. Uh, and Abudi was uh, from the Middle East. He was from Saudi Arabia. His family was in the oil business in Saudi Arabia, by the way, which is a good, good business to be in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, and he was just, we were just chumming. We were just hanging out. And he was like, man, you've never been to London? I was like, never been to London? He's like, well, let me show you around. So I got in his Mercedes Benz and we just drove around London all night and hung out. And he showed me all the cool sights. And then he dropped me off at the airport the next day. And that was it. And oh, and then whenever he left, like he, I was like, hey man, thanks so much for hanging out with me, Abudi. You're awesome. Good to meet you. Here's my phone number. He, we swapped numbers. Uh, I was like, yeah, man, God bless you. Cool. And, uh, and then I hopped on a plane and, and flew back to uh, America. Abudi, once every three or four months, would call me. And he would just talk and talk and talk. And every time he would call me, he'd be like, hey, you gotta come. I'm gonna be in the south of France all summer. And you need to just come and spend the summer in the south of France with me. And I was like, I, I can't do that. I had a window washing company. I was like, I'm busy washing windows, right? That I can't go to the south of France. I've got window washing to do. Uh, and, then, uh, and then he'd be like, oh, now I'm gonna be in Prague. And now I'm gonna be, and he just lived the most extravagant, crazy life ever. He just traveled and had all these different homes and all these different places he lived. And so about every four months, he would invite me. Finally, uh, this was about eight or nine years ago, 
because I was married, but we didn't have kids yet. And a booty called me. It was like, Ben, you and your wife have got to come to Rome. I'm going to be in Rome for the entire summer. Come to Rome. And I was like, I work at a church. I can't just take the summer off and go hang out with you in Rome. And I was like, but here's what I can do. I'll give you a week. So I was like, if, if you, I don't want to like impose on your generosity, but if you're serious, like, and you really want to like fly me to Rome and my wife to hang out with you, then I could take off one week of work. He's like, deal. Give me your email address. I'll send you tickets. Sure enough, we got e-tickets from a travel agency that I Googled that was owned by his family, by the way. So I was like, okay, that's cool. He owns a travel agency as well as all the oil in Saudi Arabia. Sweet, sweet. Uh, so I get on a flight and we, my, my wife and I, we pack our bags and we're like, okay, we're going to Rome. We have no idea what's going to happen when we get there, but we're going to get on this plane. We told our friends we might get like kidnapped or whatever, but it's worth it, right? Free trip to Rome. So we fly there and we're like, worst case scenario, we know we have a flight there and a flight back. So worst case scenario, he flakes out or it's weird and then we're just homeless, but we're homeless in Rome. That's awesome. No offense if you're a homeless Roman person in here, but it feels like that would be a sweet life. <clears throat> we get to the airport. Sure enough, there's a guy that has Fuquay on a sign. It's my last name. Fuquay on a sign. Limo driver. We get in the back of a limo. He takes us to the, this is a true story, the most opulent hotel I have ever seen or Googled or experienced myself, right? It was called the Hotel de Russie and it's right in the heart of Rome. And it was this crazy fancy pants hotel. And we walk in and we check in with the, the host person and we're like Walmart pants and I got my Target shirt. Like I went, I went big and got Target shirt, but Walmart pants. Um, and I check in at the front desk and, uh, and, and they're like, yeah, cool, great. And they were like, Mr. Abudi is delayed by business, so he won't be here for a few days, but your room is all ready, and he's excited that you're going to come and be a guest, and, and he's got this whole like entourage that's going to be coming and basically taking over the hotel for three months, and we're just there for our little week. Uh, and then, he was, and then the, the person at the front desk said, I need a credit card for incidentals. I'm nervous, because like, I look at like, what incidentals cost, right? Like a Coke in a little mini fridge Coke is like, like my child's tuition, right, right? And then there's like, if you, you know, ruin a towel, it's like, there goes a car payment. Like it was just crazy, opulent, everything was crazy expensive. But nonetheless, it's just incidentals. I gotta give them a card, so I give them my credit card. And, uh, and, and we go to our room, and we're like, this is awesome. This is so crazy. And we're like trying to play like cool. Um, we had no idea what was going on. Uh, and then we hear from the, the hostess that a booty says, hey, um, I'm actually gonna be delayed and I'm not going to make it this entire week. And we were like, whoa, okay. He was like, there's something, some, I had billions of dollars that I had to make over here and so I couldn't make it. And so we're not gonna be able to make it this week, but please enjoy the hotel. And we're like, wow, okay, are you sure? Okay, cool. So now we've got this whole free hotel room, but we can't spend anything. There's this fancy restaurant in the hotel and like a spa and all that stuff. But still, we just, we slummed it in Rome and it was such a cool experience. And we like go walk around and try to find cheap food and there's no cheap food. And so we wait for other people to finish and then we take their plates and we eat their leftovers and, you know, we eat bags of chips, but we're still like, you know, we're a young married couple in Rome and just living it up and enjoying it and stealing scraps of food and it's awesome and uh, all, all that kind of stuff, right? And we don't use the towels because we're afraid we're going to ruin them. And so, you know, but it doesn't doesn't matter. We're in Rome and it's awesome. Uh, and then about halfway through the trip, a booty calls and he says, Hey, I feel so bad that I've ditched you. I'm like, I don't care. It's free room. It's fine. Pay for my airfare. I didn't say that. <clears throat> I feel so bad. Make sure you're just enjoying everything. Are you enjoying everything? I was like, Oh man, we're having the best. Are you enjoying the spa? I'm like, well, 
oh, we're not like doing this. I mean, that's too, too much and we can't really afford that. But that's, no, 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 it's all on my card. He's like, are you enjoying the restaurant? Well, no, it's all on my card. It's all on my account. Please go to the spa, go to the restaurant, live it up. I, I so badly want you to. And I was like, I can't. He's like, you have to do that. Okay, I will, right? <laughs> Guys, the next three days, right? We were halfway through our trip when we get this phone call. And I call the concierge to be like, to confirm, like, you're sure it's on his, if I get like something out of the mini fridge or order dinner, it'll be on his. He's like, absolutely confirms it's on his card. So we lived like kings. It was awesome, right? It was awesome. We got massages every day, right? There was uh, movie stars that like stayed. There was uh, Tilda Swinton. She's the white witch in Narnia. She won an Oscar for Burn After Reading. It doesn't matter. Scary lady, right? The elevator doors opened one day and it was her. It was the white witch. And we're like, ah, she sat at the restaurant one night with like a friend of hers, probably like 60 yards away while Danielle and I were eating at this crazy opulent restaurant. And I bought her, she was like drinking champagne with a friend. I was like, hey, put that on my tab. <laughs> I did. It freaked my wife out. She's an Enneagram nine. So that scare, everything scares her. But I was like, put that on my tab. And sure enough, it was like a $1,500 bottle of champagne that I bought an Oscar winner. She, I... Right? At the time, I was a junior high pastor at Christ Chapel, and I was buying champagne for movie stars. We lived it up. We did the whole thing, right? We, we enjoyed the spa. It totally changed everything, right? One of the craziest vacations. We didn't get, like, sold in traffic or anything like that, so everybody wins, right? <laughs> it was awesome. Something changed halfway through that week, obviously. What happened on that trip for us um, and why I tell that kind of long and elaborate story um, is because there is an illustration there that I want you to remember. Um, and there's an illustration of something changing in our vacation where we lived a certain way. We were in the palace, right? But we were slumming it. And we were kind of walking around timidly afraid if we break something, literally we're, we're financially dead in the water right? We, we lived in a certain way, and then something changed. What's going to happen in this passage, six verses that we're going to study, is it is going to be the catalyst for that change in our lives. We as believers have been given a promise and a love and a grace of God that we do not take advantage of, that we spend half of our life slumming it, living in the palace, understanding, yes, God is generous, but not maximizing and taking advantage of the amazing way that God loves us. God's love should pivot our lives in a way where if we knew and understood and could relate and could have the context to how much he loves us, that changes everything for us. Let me read this passage, and I think you'll see what I'm saying, and I hope, hope you'll continue to remember that idea of, okay, maybe I'm, maybe I'm living for Christ, but I'm not fully taking advantage of how sweet he is. I'm gonna read for you verses six all the way through 11, and then we're gonna chop it up and really zoom in on it. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more 
now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is so rich and so good, and I hope you see it, and I hope that that the Lord changes your heart as you leave here today, deepens your understanding of what the Apostle Paul and what the Holy Spirit wants for you because this is about the scope and depth of God's grace. What's gonna happen here is a few things. One thing is I think this passage is gonna answer a fundamental question that a lot of us wrestle with in this room and that is how do I get out of the funk that I emotionally get stuck in? Real practically, right? Let me take it out of the 30,000 foot theological and just real practically. Man, there are times in my life and I feel like as a pastor, I'm not supposed to get sad and depressed and feel like I'm just stuck emotionally with a cloud over me, but I do. And as an extrovert and as a pastor and as an optimist, those things, no, no, I should just fake it and pretend that I'm not sad. Pretend that I'm not weary. Pretend that I'm not hurting. I know you. I mean, I don't know you, all of you but I know the Holy Spirit who knows you. And I know that you're here for a reason. I know that you're listening to this for a reason. And I believe that when we get stuck in those places where it feels like the darkness will not lift, and it feels like emotionally we are stuck in a rut and we don't know why we can't get happy when we're sad and why we can't have the joy that we want to have and we maybe try to fake it and maybe you're good, I'm pretty good at faking it, and maybe you're good at faking it, but you know when you are alone that you are actually really lonely and feel stuck in that. I really believe these six verses, I believe what Paul is doing, tied with even the, the, the verses that Francis read last week, is an antidote for what we do when we just feel stuck in that place. This is it. The word of God has that. And that's where this is gonna take us. By verse 11, we're gonna get to that place to say, okay, if I could understand and rest in this, then it is an antidote to set us free from feeling stuck in our depression and discouragement and insecurity. So it's gonna answer that question, so I don't want you to miss that. But also what's gonna happen is it's gonna show three kind of general things. It's gonna show the scope and depth of God's love. It's gonna show how that, what that effects are, what the effects of God's love are in our life, and then what our response should be, really simply. Um, here's, here's what this passage really could be summarized in saying. Um, verse eight is one of my favorite verses, uh, probably in Romans, maybe period in the New Testament. It's one of my top 10. And this beautiful idea of how we see how God loves us, that while we were still sinners is when Christ died for us. When we were against God, God was still for us. That's what these verses are talking about. While we, when we were still against God, when we were sinners, right? Our sin is offensive to a holy and perfect God. And so while I was at enmity with him, while I was against him, The God of the universe, for some reason that doesn't make sense, there is a gap in my understanding of understanding why he would do that for you and for me. But while I was against him, he was still for me. And if I believe that, and if I I really believe that, if you really believe that, and really experience what that understanding is to say, man, even while I was against him, he was really, if I really believe that, that changes everything for me. The depth of my understanding and that concept pivots everything for me if I can really wrap my head around how he loves me. 
that will have massive effects in my life and it will produce an incredible response in my life. Full transparency. This sermon does not have the power to do that. My words do not have the power to do that. That is a work of the Holy Spirit. We've been praying for the last week that the Lord would do that through his word, um, but that the Lord would do that. The scope and depth and origin of God's love is, is here in scripture. Let me reread just verses six, seven, and eight for you in this kind of three verse chunk. And then the rest of the sermon, we'll just go kind of one verse at a time. But this, this three verses really just shows how massively deep God's love is. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly, that's us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, those perhaps for a good person one would dare die. So he's saying, hey, while you were weak, while you were ungodly, Christ died for you. And that's a big deal. Somebody rarely would even die for a righteous person, maybe for a good person, but then he makes sure you understand that is not you. You are not the righteous person. You are not the good person. God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, the scope of God's love for us um, is something we can talk ad nauseum about, um, but it, we've, how does it click? There's a couple of things that I want to point out here, a couple of observations in these three verses. One is this. There's a massive misunderstanding in Christianity that I should receive God's love or I get God's love because I've earned it or because I deserve it. And even if you hear me say that and you think, okay, I don't have that misunderstanding. I know that I didn't earn it. I know that I didn't deserve it. Let's say maybe that's you. There is still something inherent within us that even though I cognitively know and have heard sermons talking about, oh, it's unmerited grace and it's amazing grace and I didn't earn it, there's still something in me that constantly tries to perform. My life continues to be bent back to this misunderstanding conception that I need to earn this love. I need to work my way up. I need to perform hard enough. Um, we, we aren't. We aren't able to earn it, right? It's very clear in verse 8 that while we were still sinners, right? We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. We are sinners, right? And if you don't identify as a sinner, before we move too quickly off that concept, if you hear that and you think, Man, I don't know that I actually on a day-to-day, week-to-week, worship song to worship song, really identify as a sinner in need of that, um, I, would, I would challenge you with this. I think it's because of comparison. I think all the time I don't really acknowledge my need because I compare myself to other people and I think, okay, well, I'm doing better than that person or I'm doing better than this person. And because of that, I live in this world where all of a sudden, and I can find people who are doing worse than me, or at least in my mind, I can create narratives to make sure everyone is doing worse than me so that I don't have to confront the fact that, no, 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 I am absolutely a sinner. When you evaluate, when you evaluate the depth of your need for Christ, like really think about, do I really need him? Am I really a sinner undeserving of God's grace. When you think about that and when you evaluate to what depth you really believe that you are in that need, just let me ask you, think about it, talk to the Lord, rhetorical question. Are you comparing yourself to other people or are you comparing yourself to the holiness of a perfect God and Father? Because I think my comparison to other people neuters the fact that then I don't really believe the depth at which I am a sinner, which I am a sinner, right? I am just, I am a pastor in this room 
who's been in vocational ministry for 15 years, I am absolutely, absolutely 100% just as in need of grace, just as dead, just as wicked of a sinner of, of anyone else in this room or out there. Right? I don't get to play the card of like, well, I don't struggle with that anymore. In my 30s, I used to in my 20s, or this isn't. No, no, the, the depth of my sin is absolutely there. And so I think it's really important for us, if we're gonna talk about his grace and how amazing his love is, I can't blow past the idea that, wait, I, he saved me while I was a sinner. Do I really believe that I was a sinner? Or do I think, well, I'm not that big of a sinner? Comparison is going to, is going to keep you stuck in the mud. It's going to not let you experience God's grace because you don't really believe you are as bad as you really are. Second observation I want to make in this passage, in these three verses here is this. Love here is defined in a very biblical, very beautiful way. And it's this, right? While we were still weak at the right hand, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Remember that. What was the action? Christ died for the ungodly. And then it says later in verse eight, but God showed his love for us that while we we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Love here, and not just in these six verses, but throughout scripture is very much tied to the biblical idea that biblical, real, true, authentic love that everybody wants, everybody wants to love and to be loved is tied to this idea of sacrifice. Love is sacrifice. One of my, this is gonna be a bit of a soapbox for me. One of my biggest pet peeves, and by pet peeves, I mean pisses me off, is this. Reality TV shows that present a, a pathway for someone to find love in an eight week period of time, right? <laughs> While faux dating a bunch of people all at the same time in exotic locations, right? Nothing makes me matter than the lie that reality television would tell me or tell you of what love is. And the lie that love is something, this elusive thing that you've gotta find. Ladies, he's out there. You just gotta find the right person and then it'll click and you will have found love. Guys, the one is out there. You just gotta work hard and maybe get on The Bachelor and then find the right one, right? And then it'll click. And it'll be this amazing emotional thing and you'll know, right? That's a lie. That's not the biblical perspective of love, right? The, the, idea, the, the idea that love is this chemistry-driven thing and chemistry is a value in a relationship. I do a lot of premarital counseling and I do a lot of young married couple counseling and walking with people who are kind of navigating dating. Let me tell you this. Chemistry right? That's going to be the first kind of thing you're experiencing in relationships, naturally. There's nothing wrong with that. That's naturally going to be the first. You want to date with somebody, it's going to be that first date, 90% chemistry. It's going to be emotion. How do we feel? Do we click? And, and what did I think? And I get back and I, you know, I talk to my friends about it. And I don't know. He said this and I don't know what it means. All that stuff, right? Chemistry is a real thing. It exists. Chemistry will lie to you. In a, in a long-term relationship, chemistry will always lie to you. Quote me on that. 
and follow up in 10 years if you disagree with me. Chemistry will always lie to you. And yet our world has based its foundation of love on this idea of, I gotta find the right chemistry and I feel these emotions and then things click and this person, oh man, they makes me feel this way and built on a foundation that will always shake and pivot and is not designed biblically to be a foundation. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying that that's not designed to be the foundation. That's designed maybe to be the curtains or maybe the wallpaper, it's important, but if the wallpaper changes, that's not a big deal. It doesn't rock my foundation. The foundation is this choice and this sacrifice, right? The foundation of biblical love is choice and sacrifice. It's the God of the universe, right? It's him saying, hey, I chose you. You provided zero chemistry for me. You did nothing for me. I chose you while you were a sinner and while you were against me, I was for you. I chose you and then I showed my love, how? By dying. That was foundationally the biblical definition of love, right? This idea of choosing and finding someone to say, that person I'm going to love and I'm gonna lay my life down. Even when chemistry is gone, even when things are hard, even when they're not giving me what I want, and it is God-given and it is massively more beautiful than just chemistry. And from real sacrificial love, romantic love, uh, companionship love, whatever level of love, if you wanna just talk about sweet, real friendships or romantic relationships, regardless, chemistry comes from this, this place of real sacrifice and commitment, choice to say, I'm not giving up on you. First time I told Danielle, I love her, She's gonna hate that I tell the story. She hates when I tell the story. She's probably live streaming right now. Um, no regrets, babe. Um, <laughs> first time I told her I love her, we were in her mom's downstairs office and there we were, it's a pretty romantic spot. Uh, there we were, you know, just hanging out, talking about our feelings. We've been dating for about six months. Uh, and, and I knew, yeah, I knew what I was gonna do. I knew I was gonna tell her. I knew that I was sold out on this girl. And I looked her in her beautiful brown eyes and I was like, Danielle, Archibald was your last name. I love you. It probably was more dramatic than that. I don't know what I did. And then she said, thank you. She said, thank you. And honestly, you all, because it's like, ah, I left it out there. That's totally beautiful. My love for her was never based on whether or not she reciprocated, right? Like when I said I loved her, it meant we are going to get married. I am choosing, I want to choose to lay my life down for you or you're going to have to get a restraining order because it's going to get real creepy, right? Like that's where it was headed. That way it was a choice that we made. And obviously it was chemistry and all those things, but our love was foundationally built on, I want to lay, I want to serve you and I want to lay down my life for you even when things are hard and, and not fun and the chemistry changes and people change and all that stuff. Foundationally, that's what love is. That's what love is, shown here. That's the kind of love that our Father has, choice and sacrifice for us. He chose us and he sacrificed for us. That's his love. That's what it looks like. That's what it feels like. Um, have you watered down God's love? Rhetorical question, take it to the Lord. When you think about Jesus loves me, God loves me, I'm loved by God, when we sing about God's love, do we just feel like it's a chemistry thing? It's like, I don't feel God's love. I don't feel emotional. That song, I don't know, I just didn't connect as well. Or, or I just feel, is your love with the God of the universe been watered down by ourselves to just kind of be a chemistry-driven love? Or is your love 
from God that you are experiencing, that you believe you are receiving, do you understand the sacrifice and the choice that he has made for you? Let me give you, let me give you three effects, really two effects and then one response from us uh, from the last three verses here. Two effects of that kind of love. If I really understood, really understood that love. God loved me while I'm a sinner. He chose me. What happens? Verse nine. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Okay, so the first effect that we see in this little passage, we see those verses six, seven, and eight as man. Look at the depth. While we're far off, he loves us. And then verse nine, we see this effect Okay, what happens? What, what, what is one of the effects of it? And it is that we are justified by God. One of the effects of God's incredible love for me is that I am justified by God. And to be justified, let me define that, is to make someone right, right? Or, or in the biblical context, to make someone righteous. That I, am, I have been not just God loves me. That's sweet and it's a pat on the back and it's an emotion. No, there is effects to it and foundationally, it's that I'm justified, that I wasn't right, and now, because of that way he loves me, I am now made right with him, which means everything for my relationship with him. There is a payment that is still due, right? He doesn't just pretend that there's no sin in my life. The God of the universe who is holy sees me while I'm far off and says, I want to be in a, I choose I choose him, I choose her, sacrifices so that then I can be made right, so that the payment of my sin can be paid for by Jesus' blood, right? The sacrifice of God's own son. A payment is due, and so I'm justified. Let me show you the second thing it does in verse 10. So it justifies us, but also, verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Reconciled to God. Justified by God. Reconciled to God. Uh, reconciled is, is really the result of, um, it's really the result of being justified, right? That when I'm made right, when I'm, when I'm justified, then all of a sudden the result of that is that I am, I am then completed and in fellowship with God. The Hebrew word there, uh, that's used in the Old Testament is also the same word that it gets interchangeably used for the word atonement, right? So the idea of atonement is this idea that I am at one, right? That I am connected to God, that I have fellowship with God because that's what he has done for me. Um, one of my favorite stories to illustrate this in the Old Testament, I'll be real quick um, on the story, but is, is Hosea, right? I love Hosea and the picture that it is of this kind of love. In Hosea, Hosea is a prophet. He gets called to marry a prostitute named Gomer who continues to cheat on him. Continues to have men with other babies with other men, right? That he then is raising in his household while his wife is off cheating on him. Um, and God calls him to continue to love, continue to love, continue to love. Eventually, she just runs off and, and full sin goes back into that lifestyle until eventually she's so used up that she's no longer good as a prostitute anymore. No one will pay for her as a prostitute anymore. And so she gets brought to the slave auction to just be sold as a servant in someone's house, servant in someone's kitchen, because she's no good as a prostitute anymore. And Hosea shows up to that auction 
because God calls them to, because God says, I want to show my people in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in a coffee shop in 2020, I want to show my people how much I love them. I want this to be a picture of how I love them. And so Hosea shows up at this auction as his bride, who has betrayed him and betrayed him and betrayed him and betrayed him, stands there and he gives everything, right? The text would, would uh, suggest that he actually doesn't even have enough money, and so he has to like pay with barley and other supplies just because he wants to buy her back. Never gave up on her even though she wandered, and buys her back, makes the payment so that she would then be able to return to him as his wife. That's what it looks like to be justified, made right, and then reconciled back into a relationship in such an imbalanced way. Let me show you this. This is really interesting. So I'm gonna put an equation up up on the screen. So three things that we see we are, right? Um, We are weak in this passage. We are ungodly in this passage and we're sinners, right? While we're still weak, right, in in verse six, um, we are ungodly in verse six, right? And then sinners there in verse eight, he says, but he shows his love while we're still sinners. And then look what happens. Weak, godly, unsinners. And then something happens here where the weak, ungodly sinners, what we receive from this text, these six verses, are we are loved we are justified, we are reconciled. You know, I talked about like, I don't understand how this works. Why would God do this? This is what God does. This is how God loves you. This is how God loves you. Weak, ungodly, sinner, hurting, far from him, and he says, yes, but through Christ, I will love you, I will justify you, I will reconcile you, and from that place, our response is worship. When we talk about worship, when we do worship and we sing in here, we're not singing songs. We're not singing songs to stoke emotion, right? We are responding to this truth that we either believe or we don't believe. That's what worship is. It is a response to the reality that I don't deserve this and yet I was given it. I don't deserve this and yet I'm still called to his altar to eat and be with him. I don't deserve to be at his altar, but he says, come, that's insane, And yet that's who our God is. That is who our God is and what he does. Worship is a response to that. And then look at the effect, right? Verse 11, last verse. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Man, when I'm stuck in a funk, I do not want to rejoice. When I feel like the fog, the cloud will not lift, I just want to fake it and I just want to pretend that I'm happy and okay. And then here I say, man, I rejoice? How? How do I just muster that up? I don't. It doesn't come from in here. My ability to just be happy when I am low doesn't come from me just gritting my teeth and trying to be happy. It doesn't come from that for you. It comes from this truth of who I am and what he's done for me. And it It comes from me staring at that and hoping that I understand that deeper and deeper and deeper. The depth at which I understand that equation in my life, that I was a sinner who Christ died for while I was still a sinner and that he fully loved me, fully reconciled me. The depth at which I understand that will be the depth at which I will be able to, verse 11, rejoice. That will be the depth at which I will be able to rejoice. The depth of our worship and joy is the depth with which we understand, connect, and relate to what God has done. Let me say that again. 
the depth at which I understand what God has done for me. If I really, not just, okay, I, I get it. I get it, I understand, he loves me. No, 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 the depth at which I would understand that. Would I never be satisfied in? Would I be a 37-year-old pastor who when I'm 47, I understand that depth even more. I'm able to connect to it. I'm able to relate to it. Would you be young adults, men and women, who would leave this room with a deeper depth and understanding by the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing truth in what God's word says, and then saying, Lord, praying the scary, bold prayer, give me more depth and understanding. Would I connect, would I relate to how you love me? And in that depth is going to be the ceiling in which we will be able to worship and rejoice our God as a response to that place. Um, there is two corners that we get stuck in. One corner is this corner where we, where we sit here and we think, man, I hear this. I hear this truth. But the need is not there. Right? I don't really feel... I don't really feel like I need this. I feel like I'm okay. I feel like I'm doing okay. And we get stuck in this place where the gospel that we just talked about for 30 minutes becomes white noise. And it's a really scary and really dangerous place. And we got so many distractions. We can be stuck in this place for years and not know it, right? We cannot know that we're stuck in this place. But if you're here this morning, there's a, there's a chance that in your soul, you're in, this, you're in this side of the pendulum, you're in the side of the scale that you think, okay, I hear that and I know that, but I don't think I really believe I need it. I think my depth is maybe more shallow than what I'd like for it to be. And so this morning, your prayer becomes, God, would you help me? Would you help me understand how I need this? We're about to sing a song, and at the very beginning of the song, you're gonna sing or you're gonna pray or you're potentially going to miss it. I hope you don't. But it's going to be the lyrics, hurting and broken within, overwhelmed by the weight of your sin. I mean, there's a lot of us that feel like, yeah, I sing that song, but I don't know that I really understand my depth of how much I need him. Man, would we grow in that? Would we walk out of that and say, Lord, give me more understanding of what you've done for me so that I might respond in worship? And then there's one last spot that we get stuck in, and it's this spot over here where it says, okay, I absolutely know my need. I know my need. I know what I've done. I know how far I've gone. I can relate to Gomer standing on a stage, being auctioned off because I know what I've done. And I know there are brothers and sisters in this room who think, okay, I don't have a problem knowing how bad I'm hurting and how far I am from God. I have a problem believing that God's love really is that powerful for my sin. That sisters, no matter what you have done, no matter what has been done to you, no matter where you have gone, no matter how far you feel like you have wandered into the darkness, that God's power is strong enough that brothers, no matter what you have done, no matter what you feel like you are addicted to, still and stuck in, that you would grow in your understanding to say, I know God's, I know my need. Would I know God's grace and really believe the depth of how much he really loves me? Not waiting for me to get cleaned up, but right now, this morning. Let me pray for you and then let's walk into that. Father, Father, would we... Um, would we worship right now, God? Would we respond to your truth this morning, this reality of how you love us, and would we respond 
genuinely. Um, Father, would, um, would you do business in our hearts right now in a way that only you can do? And God, protect us from not just shifting back into song mode. As I know the heart of those who are leading us is that they're not leading songs, they're leading us to you and to your heart. And so God, here in just a minute, when we stand and start to read lyrics from a back wall, would those be prayers that we're praying? Prayers that you are really enough, that we are understanding of our depth, our need, but also believing in confidence, your grace. God, would that pivot happen in our hearts? Would that pivot happen in our lives, God? That we're living in relationship with you, but we're not taking advantage of it. That we're not really taking advantage of it, God. And so would we walk in that confidence? You. Do what only you can do. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.